Recovery Elevator, episode 135. So I never really had the proverbial rock bottom, but always that sort of, that conflict within me that said, it just doesn't feel right. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for three years and two days. On today's podcast, we've got, wait a second, yep. That just said three years. On September 7th, it was a pretty cool day. It marked my three-year soberversary without a drink. It felt pretty good. To celebrate, I made a video. It was with Ben, my standard poodle. We were going to hop on a motorcycle and then jump off a cornhole board. It was going to be sweet. This video is on the Recovery Elevator Facebook page, but when I'm about to do it, I say, hell no. No way that's going to happen. I really don't know how to ride a motorcycle, and there's no way Ben's going to do it with me. But the point of the video is I am going to take myself less serious from year three to year four and hopefully moving forward. That's what I want to work on. I want to say, oh, well, to gravity problems. And gravity problems are problems that we can't help. They are problems that are there, and we can't do anything about them. So I want to keep the bar of expectations realistic. I'm going to laugh more, and I'm going to take things less seriously. On today's podcast, we've got Mary Beth. She's from New Hampshire, and she's been sober since November 26th, 2016. And before we get to our topic today, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. And today's topic comes from a question that was posted in Cafe RE. Someone posted the question, what are some things that helped you in early sobriety? And I loved reading the responses so much that I wanted to share them with you. One person said, I haven't gotten to 30 days, but talking to people about it in social outings has helped me tremendously. Another person said, I started telling small handfuls of friends at a time. I also gave in to my sugar cravings without much guilt, anything to keep me from drinking at night, and I walked everywhere. I had so much nervous energy that it was a great way to get it out. Oh yeah, my dogs loved it too. Another person said, spend two to four hours a day on your sobriety. Be willing to do anything and to get uncomfortable and don't give up. Another person said, tell everyone that you're sober. Creating that accountability does wonders for your sobriety. It's not shameful. Do not feel like you have to keep it a secret. The people who matter don't mind. The people who mind don't matter. I actually love that sentence. I'm going to say that again. The people who matter don't mind. The people who mind don't matter. Here's another person's response. Here's another person's response. Here's another person's response. Long walks with podcasts, doing the 30-day sobriety solution, took takes about an hour a day, and saying no to things that may be too challenging in early sobriety like social gatherings. Another person said, I ate sugar without shame or guilt, morning, noon, or night. I accepted it for a need for the time being, and to this day, I have no regret. Number two, went to an AA meeting daily. The first three days, I went to two to three meetings, knowing I wasn't alone in my community. Hearing a few similarities was great in early sobriety. Seeing what looked and sounded like normal women and some men talk about years of sobriety was helpful and inspiring. Number three, no alcohol around me. In our house, 
If we went out, which we did go to a lake for a weekend during my first 30 days, no alcohol was ordered by my husband. Keeping it out of sight and smell the first month helped me a lot. Another person said, wake up early. Do things that tire yourself out and go to bed early. Number two, talk to people. Reach out for support. And number three, create accountability. Tell people you are sober. This is the hardest thing for me to do. Another response was, keep busy and keep away from old routine. Completely surrender to your addiction and get help. Enjoy the feeling of newfound freedom. It only gets better. I second that. Yes, it does. Another person said, sleep as much as you can. Listen to podcasts and read recovery books as much as you can and find at least one person to be honest and open with about your sobriety. Another person said, find something to focus on that will help you get out of your old routine. For me, it was exercise and running. Number two, try things that will support you and give you ideas to maintain your sobriety. AA meetings, this group, podcasts, audiobooks, etc. Number three, change your thinking. I get to be clear and sober as opposed to poor me. I can't drink like others and put toxins in my body in a responsible manner. That's a big one right there. That's the change in thinking from quitting drinking as a sacrifice to a tremendous opportunity, which it is. Another person said, pick something fun to do that you never did sober. I read a book, did a puzzle with my kids, ate ice cream any day of the week I damn well pleased. And here's what somebody else said. Give yourself a fighting chance and tell as many people as you can. Who cares if you relapse? It's one of the most addictive drugs in the world. Number two, give yourself another fighting chance and avoid outings or places where you're 99% sure you're going to drink at, especially in the first 30 days. Number three, most importantly, start doing the things you don't want to do. This could be get a sponsor, go to a smart meeting, anything. Another person said, I hate this saying, but it's so true. Take it one day at a time. Just don't drink for today and worry about tomorrow. Another person said sleep. Sleep when you can, and if the evenings are a trigger, go to bed early. Even just going in my room to separate myself from my usual routine helped a lot. Another person said, find a new favorite beverage. Mine was Diet A&W Root Beer. I drink as many as I wanted to each night. Number two, stay away from temptations. Skip bars, Christmas parties, weddings, whatever you need to do to avoid alcohol. Number three, eat as much junk food as you want for the first little while. I also found a short, brutal cardio workout at about the time you normally would start drinking, and they found this killed cravings and settled anxiety. Another person said, inundate your brain with podcasts, books, recovery groups, in-person groups, on social media groups, all the above. Second thing, change up your routine. Third thing, drink a lot of water, get a lot of sleep, do a lot of self-care, and throw in some ice cream. Another person said, change up your daily routine more than you think you need to. Take a different way to and from work. Exercise at a different time. Have dinner at a different time. Order the groceries so you don't have to go to the store. Take walks. Go to bed early. Whatever it takes to break the habit and distract yourself. Number two, post in this group for accountability multiple times per day if needed. Number three, treat yourself. Staying sober is hard at first, but it doesn't need to feel like you are punishing yourself. Give yourself a sober treat or two. Another person said, I read, watched, listened to as many addiction-related things I could get my hands on. I needed to hear stories like mine where they came out successful. I also attended many online AA meetings. Didn't talk, but I just listened. Sugar intake increased, and I ate whatever I wanted. I went for walks, took in nature, meditated, and joined a church. I tried to surround myself with positive things. Now, those are all individual responses from people who are doing this. And I wanted to read all those together because there's a couple underlying themes that emerge. Number one is change. You've heard the saying, you don't have to change much. You just have to change everything. Son of a gun. A lot of people said, you need to change routines. You need to change a lot of things. And that's true. Another thing that emerged was accountability. 
This would be the worst recovery podcast on the entire planet if on episode 135, it was the first time I mentioned you can't do this alone. Nope, I've said that almost every episode. You can't do this alone. You have to create accountability for yourself. Now, alcoholism is a thinking disease. You can't think your way out of this one. But another cool thing that emerged is you can fill that brain of yours with knowledge. You can do a lot of research about this topic. And knowledge is not power unless you use it. And another really cool thing to emerge out of that is be kind to yourself. Treat yourself. You want ice cream in early sobriety? Eat some damn ice cream. Okay, let's hear from Mary Beth. Mary Beth, how are you? Good. How are you, Paul? Fantastic. Mary Beth, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Just a little over eight months. My sobriety date is November 26, 2016. Nice. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. And what was the date of Thanksgiving in 2016? Was that right around there? I think it was the 24th. Okay. So a little after that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Getting sober is difficult. There's never a good time. Uh, but I think it's awesome when people decide to get sober on like December 30th or 31st or just right in the holidays, right around Thanksgiving time. Because a lot of people kind of postpone that date till for some reason 1-1-2017 sounds like a great day, the right. first day of the new year. But yeah, there's no good time. Just just go ahead and get that started if you're out there listening. And uh, fantastic. Nice job. And before we get any further, let's get more information about you, Mary Beth. Maybe tell us where you're from. How old are you? What you do for a living? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so I'm 51. I live in New Hampshire, southern New Hampshire, but originally from Massachusetts. I am married with four children. Two of my children are special needs, so they require a lot of attention and time. But I do try to counter that with a lot of self-care and take care of myself with yoga, meditation. We do downhill skiing in the winter. We rent a place up at Loon. It's really fun. And I like to exercise frequently and visit with friends and family. Uh, we have a lot of friends and family in the area. So pretty busy life. Sounds like it's very busy. And now you're age 51. When did you first realize that perhaps, you know, you didn't drink normally? I would say over the, you know, the career of my drinking, which started probably about the age of 15 or 16 in high school when everyone first tries it. Or not everyone, but a large majority of people try it. Mm-hmm. I went through stages in my life where I drank more than at others, and it never really curdled me or caused any relationship problems, but it was sort of just that inner voice saying, oh, this is a little a little much, and I should probably back off. So I never really had the proverbial rock bottom, but always that sort of that conflict within me that said, it just doesn't feel right. Can you explain a little bit more about that? You said the conflict within, and it just doesn't feel right. Tell us more about that. So I did just end up finishing the, um, the book, This Naked Mind, and I came upon the term, the cognitive dissonance, and that was just my big, that's what it was. <laughs> mm. So here I am trying to be a role model for my kids, active lifestyle, exercise, eating right, but my drinking wasn't fitting the picture. A couple times I had to blow the gym off because I wasn't feeling great because of a hangover. And, you know, I'd do a yoga position, do a downward dog, and I'd get that rush after um, in the morning when your head's not quite right. And mm-hmm. you feel like, oh, why did I do that last night? So it wasn't fitting the picture of what my vision for myself was, but I just neglected to put any attention into ridding myself of it. There it just go. was part of life. So I tolerated it, I guess I should say. 
Yeah, and I remember the chapter in This Naked Mind about cognitive dissonance, and it resonated with me as well. And for me, the cognitive dissonance was waking up in the morning and swearing off alcohol for the rest of my life. And then right around noon, 3, 4 p.m., 5 o'clock, you want it. And not only do you want it, you're you're drinking and sometimes you're drunk and it's just, it's exhausting. You know, having those pendulum swings, they're so drastic throughout the day. In the morning, in midday, you're like, I am, I'm never drinking again the rest of my life. And then you're drinking just moments later. It's, it's exhausting. And is that something that you experienced as well? That's exactly what it was. Exactly what it was. But also just infused in our culture to the point where you kind of feel everyone's doing it. So I'm like, well, they must be feeling the same way. And if they're tolerating it, like, I I don't want to necessarily say I'm a follower because I feel like what I did back in November is definitely not what the crowd's doing. The crowd is not stopping drinking. I felt like I just became part of the culture and drank the (laughs) Kool-Aid. That's the term that they use sometimes when people just, you know, do what the crowd's doing because they're doing it. But I I don't don't want to define myself as, as that anymore. It's just not not part of my picture anymore moving forward. Mary Beth, I hear you loud and clear on that one. Drinking the Kool-Aid, in fact, uh, there was a TEDx talk that I did in April called titled, I've Been Duped by Alcohol, and I was not a leader amongst all my friends or my contemporaries, shall we say. I was just a follower. I just did what everybody else did. I drank the same amounts as all my friends and my brother and my best friends. And, uh, you know, given my genetic makeup and the environment surrounding me, yeah, I'd be, I slowly became addicted to alcohol. Hey, Mary Beth, tell mm-hmm. us about your drinking habits. How much did you drink prior to November 26th, 2016? I guess a big red wine drinker, but there was that time where I did paleo cleanse, where I cleansed myself of all sugar and gluten and everything. I did a 30-day cleanse probably about four years ago. And then when I started drinking back again, I did tequila, and I mm. would sip it. <laughs> um, I would just... I would sip it like a lady, and I prided myself on the fact that I could drink tequila. I mean, I wouldn't drink a lot, but you know the tequila buzz is so much different than a wine buzz, so I had to be very, very careful. But I would sip it neat, and people used to think I was a rock star. (laughs) And I used to think that was pretty cool, but then that kind of went away because I guess it's not like a a drink you can have in volume, and when people are drinking at a party and there's a lot of volume... Tequila doesn't do the trick anymore, you know, because you wouldn't be able to stand up straight. So I switched back to wine. Did you ever put any rules in the place? And it sounds like switching back from tequila to wine is kind of like a rule in the place. Yeah, yeah, I definitely had those. Um, and that's another word from the naked mind, the guardrails. I kind of knew, like, uh, I'll never be a morning drinker, and I'll never start before 5, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. So my drinking started... The wine drinking started sort of like when I'd make dinner for the family. I'd pour myself a glass of red wine, make the dinner. My husband would come home, and then we'd finish the bottle of wine together. Mm-hmm. Maybe open a second bottle. Sure. <laughs> but my chronicity of it was at least two glasses of wine a night, every night. And how long did this um, go on for? Not- two glasses of wine for years? For how long? Years. 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 Yeah. And did you see, you know, two glasses of wine every night for for years, that doesn't sound much like a progression to me, but was there a progression? And it doesn't have to be like the amount you were drinking, but the progression could have been after that second glass of wine, it is more difficult to stop. Was there any sort of progression for you? There wasn't any progression, but I think perhaps my age and maybe menopause might have affected the way I was metabolizing the wine because I'd wake up feeling 
awful after two glasses. So I never wanted to go beyond two because I didn't want to feel any worse. Sure. So I think it was just sort of like an age thing. I kind of grew up. I just kind of felt like, okay, my body's not handling this anymore. Time to time to stop. Well, did you ever reach a moment where you found it really difficult to stop? You, you know, example, the next morning you, you you felt worse through you know as you got older. But did you experience that it was just becoming harder and harder to stop drinking once you started? Yes. I felt like I'd had to make a conscious decision to say, you know what, I just can't do any of it because I can't just do a little. And, you know, sometimes two, like on the weekends, would turn into three. You know what I mean? But during the week, it was like two glasses. On the weekends, it might have been three. So for me, I'm only five one. I'm a little person. That's a lot of wine for me. And it was also putting on a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. So... I'm a Weight Watchers member, and I would struggle with my last, you know, 10 pounds. I just couldn't shake it. Mm-hmm. The minute I stopped alcohol, I'm like, I've been at my goal weight since March, and it's been a no-brainer. So easy to keep it off. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. So, yeah. So that's the pro of, of stopping. But it never progressed more like I needed more to get a buzz. It was almost the opposite. It was almost like my body was saying, enough of the alcohol. Like my liver might have been just saying, we're done processing you might want to think about stopping. And I think a lot of us, our bodies are very finely tuned machines and they alert us in many ways. For me, it was anxiety. And a lot of us ignore these these messages, but I was unable to ignore the messages. The anxiety was just too acute for me. But you're right, yeah, mm-hmm. my body as well, I was needing more and more to, to, to get the same effect my body was telling me, Paul, you're, you're killing yourself slowly with your anxiety. But let's back it up a little bit. Right around November 25th, shall we say, was there a bottom moment or was this something you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired? So I, I kind of attribute my sobriety to an accident. I was texting and walking and broke my ankle. Oh, good. So I'm casted for eight weeks. And this is the beginning of my casting. I got I broke my ankle on November 13th. So from the 13th to the 25th, very hard to walk with crutches and carry a glass of wine. <laughs> and text. You can't do that. <laughs> so I believe it was divine intervention that kind of woke me up and said, this is what I want you to look at, Mary Beth. So my son, my oldest son, I had him pour me a glass of wine and bring it to me. And there were just so many things that felt wrong about that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want my kids bringing me a glass of wine, and I don't want them to be witness to this. And then, of course, crutch walking is very tricky. I didn't want to fall and hurt my other leg. So I'm like, this is a really good time to cleanse myself. So I think I got online and just sort of Googled things, and I came upon the 30-Day Sobriety Solution by Jack Canfield and Dave Andrews. Mm-hmm. And I figured, well... I'm in a cast for eight weeks. It kind of forced me to do some work on myself. And how was that program? And, I've, um, I've heard of it before. You can do it in your own home is what they advertise. You read a chapter a day. You do the work in that chapter that day. And it just worked. It hmm. just was like an awakening for me. Just really, I, I thought it was a great book. Great book. So that was, that was you know, my key to opening up this awakening and feeling much better about myself as a person and finding different ways to handle life stressors than grabbing a glass of wine. Yeah. And tell me about (laughs) another time when you just seemed like it was just painful that you realized like, look, the drinking probably has to go. 
There were probably different times over the years. Like we had a lake house up in New Hampshire on a lake. And I don't know if you've been familiar with Lake Living, but it's a big, big drinking group of people. <laughs> you boat, you go to a sandbar, you open up a cooler and you have your beers. And that's how we spent every weekend for seven years. And this is when we had small children. And I would leave that lake house every Sunday without fail with huge, huge, heavy hearts. Hmm. guilt beyond guilt saying this is not what I want for my kids to remember I don't know if they remember me being drunk they don't really talk about it I've never done anything you know crazy for them to like say oh my god mom is you know not herself none of that ever happened but it was just that that inner barometer that it just felt wrong and that was from 2000 and uh 2007 to 2014 well, good on you for listening to that inner barometer. Like I mentioned earlier, your body will tell you, give you signs that it's not headed in the right direction. So good on you for listening. And was it difficult? How, how, how was it for you when you did the 30-day challenge, a chapter a day, do the work in the workbook? How was that? I think they broke it down so nicely. And again, I don't think I had the physical dependence. It was more the emotional dependence on alcohol that it wasn't all that awful. I announced it to my family, to my husband, who was super supportive. Um, he's still drinking, which he's very blessed. I'm not being that judgy wife going, you should stop, you should stop. Mm-hmm. I just, I know better than that. <laughs> I kind of felt like if I do this work on myself, he's going to see how happy I am and that perhaps, you know, set an example and that maybe he might catch on and join the group when, uh, when he's ready. Mm-hmm. The key word I heard there was announced. When you decided to make this transition in your life, you announced it to your husband, announced it to your family. That's creating accountability right there. And how important do you think accountability has been so far in this this past eight months? You know, it's been really, it's been really great. Like there's been several family get-togethers, and everyone just says, "Oh, this is the new and improved MB." And you know, again, back in the day when I would drink, I couldn't handle my alcohol because I'm so small that I'd be passing out. I'd be going to bed early. I'd be in bed at 10 when everyone else is staying up till 1. <laughs> and now I'm up till 2 feeling fantastic. And they're all like, oh, my God, you're, like, around more. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Beth 2.0s, closing it down. Yeah. 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 And um, I'm actually, I mean, I'm not bothered by the group drinking around me. It's really kind of entertaining. I have glimpses of, oh, I remember when I used to do something like that. Or I remember when I would have lots of judgment there or do something different here and like now I feel so proud that I'm in control of my faculties and I can still have a good time and it sounds like there was a lot of liberation of just announcing it and and getting this 10,000 pound grill off your back you know when you came off the sandbar on the weekend at the end of the weekend you just riddled with guilt and shame has it been liberating for you to to kind of just announce this and make this decision in life Absolutely. And I'm feeling that, uh, again, it's the leading by example. And I'm hoping that I, I kind of find I find it to be sort of like an awakening. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I was asleep and numbing myself with alcohol, but I feel like I don't necessarily, I didn't drink alcohol to numb. It just kind of happened. I was kind of like snared by it. I snared by it socially and then numbed unintentionally. I wasn't seeking to numb anything. I had a pretty good childhood. Alcohol wasn't really around my house, except for at family gatherings. 
I mean, again, it was just that social piece that grabbed me. And it was so ingrained culturally that you needed it to have a good time. Mary Beth, I'm going to comment on something you just said. I also had a phenomenal childhood. Thank you, Molly and Perry Churchill. And I wasn't drinking to numb anything in particular. But towards the end, you know, towards mid-20s, when I was obviously had a drinking problem, then I started to numb the problems that alcohol was creating in my life. And I feel like I kind of just drank the Kool-Aid for a long time. And thank goodness I'm on the other side of that at this moment. And Mary Beth, how have mm-hmm. your relationships changed in the last eight months now that you're not using this drug called alcohol? I would think that if you interviewed my children, they would say that I'm a happier person, longer fuse. <laughs> I think before I speak a little bit longer, I like being more present with everybody. And I think that they're appreciating that. And I feel like I'm, my kids are all teens now. So I, it, it's such a great, great time to get sober because they can see, oh, mom doesn't drink. Mm-hmm. She's fine. I don't want them to think that they need it to have fun. I want them to have that choice. And they can see that it's not something you have to do to have fun. So I'm fortunate with the timing. And Mary Beth, what's on your bucket list in sobriety? What do you want to accomplish in this new life you got? Career-wise, I forgot to tell you I'm a nurse. (laughs) So that's, that's a piece of me as well. But my career right now, I feel like I need to shift from you know, the hospital scene to more like the wellness scene. So right now I kind of feel like I'm sort of trying to figure out what my next step is because I'm very inspired by yoga, meditation, and wellness and, you know, finding stress relief through those those ways because I really believe that mind-body connection with illness is huge and I would love to sort of go that route. So that's where I'm headed. Awesome. And what are your thoughts on relapse? I've heard in podcasts people relapsing or, you know, in books people relapsing. I'm also a Weight Watchers uh, member, so we relapse with Weight Watchers as well. You gain some or you binge one day, but then you get right back on a program. So I don't think I would necessarily beat myself up if I had one, but I have no intention of having one. I kind of feel like I took on that naked mind look at life now and the alcohol and I'm doing so many things to keep myself healthy why would I put a poison in me so I'm not really that threatened with relapse but I mean you can't say never say never because that's when things happen right Mm -hmm. absolutely on that one and what do you do when you when you get cravings I mean you had a lot of emotional habits to break just you know two glasses of wine a night for years and you know, how yeah. do you, did you experience cravings and what did you do? And, and do you still experience cravings? I haven't had cravings in a long time. I can't even tell you when. They kind of went away, I would say, the first three months. Nice. Um, so now it's more just that social piece. It's that making sure I have something to drink when I'm around people. But there's always options, you know. So I go prepared. And again, I'm going to give you the analogy of the Weight Watchers. You have to plan what you put in your body all day. You have to make sure your meals are healthy. You have to make sure you're not reaching for the Twinkies, you know. So I'm a planner, and I have to be ahead of the game. I can't let my guard down and be stuck at Dunkin' Donuts with, you know, being hungry. I just don't do it. <laughs> Quick question with the with the Weight Watchers thing. You mentioned, you know, there are relapses in the Weight Watcher program. Is all mm-hmm. the time and achievements done before that relapse just thrown out the window in Weight Watchers program? You know, for example, back on day one, a lot of people just discredit everything that happened previously up until that day one. What is it like in that program? 
it's so similar to drinking, it's not even funny. You sit in the meetings, you do the online piece with the Weight Watchers Connect app, mm-hmm. and everyone struggles, and then everybody on the app, like, you should see the responses to people having a bad day. Hmm. You can do this. It, it's so similar. It's an addiction. Food's an addiction, too. So I find the similarities really huge, huge and, with the um. And what do you find is the most important part of the Weight Watchers program? Is it the book? Is it the online stuff? What's the most important part? It's the online community. Okay. I was trying to draw a parallel there. <laughs> community. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Online community. It's an addiction um, and I it's do the do community meetings. support. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I did the meetings while I was actively losing weight um, in the Weight Watchers. But then, you know, once I hit maintenance, I do the online piece and then I, I weigh myself every day. <laughs> it sounds a little compulsive, but it works for me because if I see it climbing, that's my day to, to, to reel it in and make sure I'm on track. So there we go. Um, it works for me because otherwise if I don't, it'll sneak up and then two weeks becomes three weeks, becomes four weeks, and then you can't zipper your pants up, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not a good thing. you got to buy new clothes at that moment. Yeah. Right. And right. Mary Beth. So there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, and Mary Beth, with eight months of sobriety, walk us through a day in your life. What does your recovery portfolio consist of these days? Okay, so I wake up in the morning every day, half an hour before I have to wake anybody else up, and I meditate. I've been doing that for about five months, which is huge. How do you meditate? Um, Do you use an app? I use the Headspace app. Mm -hmm. It's Andy Pettitcom. He's from Australia. He's got a great voice, and he's got different different packages that you can work on, your relationships, your self-esteem, different things like that. So it's like exercising a muscle at the gym, becoming more mindful. And I feel like that mindfulness piece is huge in recovery. So that's been very beneficial. So I start every day like that. I exercise every day, whether it be yoga, weight training, or anything aerobic, mm-hmm. once a day. And it's not undoable. It, um, it's, you know, it's 30 minutes to 50 minutes of me time. I connect with friends, and I am just pursuing things that interest me. And I have a husband that's very supportive, so... It's all good right now. I'm taking it all in. I, I can appreciate the beauty right now, and it's really a blessing. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. And Mary Beth, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right, Mary Beth. And number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Okay, so I was separated from my husband, and I went out with a girlfriend and drank a little bit too much and got into a car. And instead of going reversed out of the parking space, I went forward and up and over a curb, and my car couldn't be moved. So I got out of the car, got a ride home from a friend, and never did that again. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up. It's 50-50. There's reverse or drive. You know, it's just one of the two. It's fl- flipping a coin. Really. I, I, can, I consider it a blessing that we didn't uh, get on the road. So true, true, true. Next question. We've all heard of that aha moment. Have you ever had an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking? Probably when I broke my ankle because I had a Bloody Mary on board when that happened. <laughs> Bloody Mary on board <laughs> or in hand. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Uh, it wasn't in hand. I was texting, which was bad judgment. Texting and walking is not a good idea. And next question. Mary Beth, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? So I'm just going to continue with the meditation, the wellness, the radical wellness plan I have in place, helping others, reading lots of books, and possibly attending an AA meeting, but I haven't gotten there yet. 
What is your thoughts on the AA meetings? I just want to know if it's going to be a right fit or not. I want to feel strong going in. So I think I'm probably at that point where I could visit one and check it out. That's uh, an interesting mindset. <laughs> most people, <laughs> I felt, it, most people that I know don't feel strong going in. In fact, I had to crawl underneath of the door. It was one of the weakest moments I've ever felt in my entire life going in. But um, man, there's no right way to do this. So uh, it's interesting. I've just never heard that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And next question, what is your favorite resource in recovery? I would say your podcasts have been the top number of priorities for me that's helped. Uh, I'm very much an audio learner. (laughs) I'm an audio learner, and I really love to listen to it in the car on the way to work. Well, thank you very much for listening. It means a lot to me. And then the next question in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, my dad was a recovering alcoholic. He passed away in 2012 from complications of a lung disorder. But he would always say, uh, don't sweat the small stuff. And I know that was an AA saying, so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, don't take life too seriously. That's something I've been working a lot on lately. Don't sweat the small stuff. I love it. And what parting piece mm-hmm. of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or think about getting sober? Just do it. You can always go back to it if the sobriety's not working for you. <laughs> I love that. You can always go back to it, but if if uh, if you do achieve sobriety, it usually works. So I right. love it. And be Mary Beth, before we depart, give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic gift line. Um, you might be an alcoholic if you're at a Weight Watcher meeting and all you're concerned about is if you have enough points for wine at the end of the day. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast and sharing a part of your day with us. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Three years. It's been a wild ride. At times, I coasted. At times, I was white knuckling and barely holding on. A lot of times, I was faking it until I made it. And other times, I'd made it. It felt great. But the most important part, I had nothing to do with it. I, Paul, did not do it. I could not have done it alone. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Lee Galt, for the first year of sobriety we met weekly, and he is just a great person. I'd like to thank all you guys who listen to the podcast, everybody in Cafe RE. I could not have done this alone. At times, my addiction, Gary, tries to convince me that I can continue to go about my route of sobriety alone, but it's not possible, and I don't want to find out what it's like. Another thing I don't want to do is forget what it was like when I was drinking. Next episode, I interview a gal named Megan who used to do the You Might Be an Alcoholic gift lines for the Recovery Elevator podcast for like 15 to 20 episodes, maybe episodes like 20 through 35, I think. Megan was doing great. She had some sobriety time, and then she emailed me and said, you know, I'm getting too busy. I don't have time to do the You Might Be an Alcoholic gift lines, which is totally fine. We are all busy. But eventually, Megan kind of disappeared, and she went on her separate way. But Megan reached out to me again and said, hey, I want to share my story. And it was hard to hear, but it's a great reminder. It's great sobriety fuel of what it's like to be back out there. The acute anxiety after drinking, that downward cycle of addiction, it I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones to be here today with three years of sobriety blabbing into a microphone. So I need to thank everybody out there. Molly Churchill, Perry Churchill, Mark Churchill, my family, my standard poodle, Ben, of course, you guys who are listening. I couldn't have done this alone. 
I want to thank Ty, who edits the podcast. I want to thank Randy, who does the show notes for the podcast. I want to thank Kathy, who did the show notes before Randy for the podcast. I'm fortunate to be surrounded by such awesome people in recovery. Thank you. Thank you. And here's the deal. I, I'm not a special person. I'm not some guy with a unique skill set that was required to get sober. Anybody can do this. If you're wondering how, just start at the beginning. Recovery Elevator is zero, zero, zero. But this is not a program. This is just a framework of how to get sober. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Mm-hmm.